that pathology model is telling people that these autistics are so weird. You, you can spot them a mile away because they're just freaks of nature. And the neurodiversity model says, actually, all these constellation of um, the, these characteristics and traits are normal for them, and they're not really hurting anybody. So instead of thinking they're so weird, why don't you look at them in a more neutral light and just say they're different? And then say, what's behind those differences? Why does a little kid flap his hands? Uh, what's that about? Or um, particularly like a, a, a kid who's sensitive to noises. You know, when a neighborhood dog starts barking and a kid covers his ears and rocks back and forth, it's trying to soothe himself, you know? And so while it looks strange to others, um, it's perfectly reasonable, actually. Hey, friends, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 123, and my guest today is Daniel Bowman Jr. We are talking all about Daniel's brand new book, On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. And this was a very special, precious conversation. I learned so much, and I have really been enjoying Daniel's book. It is uh, so much more than just a discussion about the subject of autism, though that is very important. Uh, It is a beautiful work of prose in its own right. Daniel is a poet and a professor, lecturer, and a, a lover of language and literature. And you can tell. Uh, so I highly recommend this to you. A couple of glitchy audio moments near the beginning. We were having some internet challenges. I did my best to clean it up, but had to leave some of it the way it was, just so that you know meaning was clear. But I'm sure you can forgive me for that. Also, happy to be back home. I've been traveling for the last couple of weeks. I made my way all the way up to the holy island of Lindisfarne in the north of England in Northumbria, and spent some, some kind of some pilgrimage, uh, contemplative time up there, and had a had a really special time celebrating as well my friend's birthday. So this is uh, timely, as you will uncover as we listen through, because we find ourselves back in the space of contemplative discussion. So, uh, alrighty, I'll get out of the way here. Uh, have a listen to my new friend, Daniel Bowman Jr. Daniel, I am so excited to welcome you to the podcast today. I've been enjoying your book immensely. Uh, it's lovely to see your face and get a little bit of time here. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I Like I was just saying off air, this book, On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity, has been an absolute feast for me. It has been at times convicting and at times challenging. Uh, At times I have cried from the beauty of your prose and your storytelling. I don't think I need your bio to tell me that you are a poet, to know (laughs) that you are a poet. Uh, And so this is, I'm just enjoying this so well. Thank you for for writing this book. Thank you for that. Um, Sometimes I, I talk to folks who are much more interested in the autism content, so to speak, than the, um, lyrical form or whatever it is I'm trying to do in the essays, but I really appreciate when um, someone can sort of um, value the way that form and content come together and work together uh, for the overall effect. Um, That just, that feels amazing to me because it feels like a piece of creative writing and it feels like something that's, uh, you know, an honest uh, wrestling with autism. Yes. Yes. In fact, you quoted someone, uh, 
I, I don't know if I can find this really in you know in the speed of this conversation, but you quoted someone about uh, this about like good art. Oh, here it is, Blackmuir. Blackmuir talked about poetry that not only expresses the matter in hand, but adds to the stock of available reality. Right, and that that boggled my mind in the most beautiful way. Uh, I think you were telling that story in the context of the art center that you were involved in. But I, right. Isn't that true of, of good art, that it, it actually expands the, the canvas for all of us? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's exactly right. I, I stole that from, um, let's see, it was in a book of um, Gregory Wolf's uh, editorial statements to open up each issue of Image Journal uh, from some years back. And this uh, was in one of those editorials. And yeah, it really stunned me. I, I teach that in creative writing classes here at Taylor that, um, you know, some of these kids growing up, um, they, they can't imagine their lives without Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or something. And I say, yeah, because that's, a, that's part of your reality. That's part of your overall um, life experience that you get to have because someone sat down and crafted it and made mistakes along the way and tried to fix them and um, you know earnestly undertook the, the 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 work of the of the artist and so that's something it does boggle my mind too and I think about that a lot yeah so that's I love that you brought that up about Lord of the Rings and Narnia and I see you've got this great vintage Star Wars poster behind you because I don't know if you ever read Dune, but but no, I haven't. <laughs> but I mean, that world and that planet is as real in my conscious imagination as as anything else. And I often I often feel a little bit self conscious <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, sometimes we have those conversations in my creative writing classes about um, have you ever. Um, watched a film that fell short of your expectations based on a book. And of course, everyone's hands go up. And maybe, maybe that's part of it. The realities uh, that we get to participate in the creation of meaning as mm -hmm. we read. Uh, and those, those become parts of our um, mental and emotional and even physical realities in, in strange ways that I don't quite understand. Yes, that's so true. Okay, so I do also want to talk about the autism content, uh, and, sure. <laughs> and I would love, I wonder if you would start by telling us some of your story, perhaps um, wherever you would like to go, but I was thinking uh, even some of your early years, your adult years, pre-diagnosis, and then, and then the shift. Yeah, you know, in terms of early years, I had to go through when I was writing this book, and this is probably the most healing thing for me. Um, I had a new lens through which to interpret everything that I had been through in my life before. So the story that the, the only stories that were available to me to tell myself about myself were that I was weird. I was oversensitive. I was shy. I was quirky. Um, and all these things when you're growing up um, as a boy in a blue collar world as I was, all these things are basically are synonyms for bad or weak or wrong. <laughs> and so if you have no explanation, you have no language or vocabulary with which to um, speak about the way your mind works and your body and, and, um, 
no understanding of neurodivergence or neuroscience at all, then the stories that you tell yourself about yourself are very limited and very limiting. And uh, the, the, the result is that you carry around a lot of shame, I, th I think. Most autistics do. And so um, in interviews, over and over and over, those themes keep appearing. Every time a, a clinician or a researcher interviews an autistic person, they say, tell me about your childhood. And basically they say, um, I felt like I didn't belong on planet Earth. I felt like an alien. And they use those exact words. And so you carry this guilt and shame. Um, and, and then the, 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 the diagnosis for me really helped me reclaim some of those years and go back and reinterpret those years and say, it wasn't that I was weird or stupid or bad, just that I was autistic and my brain respond differently to, to what's happening around me. And that's, that's neutral rather than a death. Uh, and so that it's just absolutely so powerful. And then even later on in my adult life, the book began, which I think most, most good stories begin with some, some uh, conflict or some tension, um, at least under the surface, if not um, kind of exploding right in front of you. My tension was a, a crisis in my personal life, in my family life, when I had had a meltdown and wasn't understanding why I felt so terrified and afraid and ashamed and awful. And, and why can't, I, why couldn't I just deal with life the way everybody else did? I didn't know anybody else who acted like this. And I thought, I wish that I could just let things bounce off me. When can I, how can I get there? Do I need more therapy? Do I need a spiritual director? Do I need, what do I need to do? Um, and it turns out uh, that there, all of these things were uh, formed a kind of constellation of traits and characteristics. And then I recognized I'm not, just a weirdo or a bad person. I just have this brain wiring and this brain wiring doesn't do well if there's, let's say a sudden shift in routine or, um, or, or a lack of structure or sensory overload or whatever it is. Um, and so once I could put all that together, I uh, was able to be freed uh, from a lot of that shame that I carried around with me for many years. Mm. That's beautiful. And I'm so sorry for, for that reality of, of difference feeling wrong. Uh, yeah. As a, as a neurotypical person, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm in your debt for taking the time to do the work to educate. Hmm. And so I, I'm, I want to acknowledge that. Um, I really appreciate that. It's, it's, um, <laughs> Yeah, and then when you learn about this, then the burden is, uh, okay, now people know my story's out there. They are relying on me to educate them and things like that. And what if I don't even know what I'm talking about yet? I need more years to try to comprehend this and, and everything. But these little milestones, like maybe publishing one book and maybe meeting some people through a podcast like this um, or getting an email from a listener later on, which does happen, you know, are, are, to me are just so um shocking and so beautiful uh that it's it's an amazing journey to be on right now that's so wonderful do you have any thoughts on kind of i guess the, the uniqueness of the journey for someone who uh learns that they're autistic as an adult versus um 
the childhood, you know, kind of diagnosis. My neighbor here, uh, right next door, their eldest son is, is autistic, and he's uh, maybe five years old. And most of my touch point is is in that realm. Right. Yeah, I you know, um, it's just hard to know. Um, it's hard to know how things would have played out differently for me, I suppose, in my own life. I tell the story, I can't remember which part of the book it's in, about um, a run-in I had with my fifth grade teacher that was really traumatic for me. Uh, and I think to myself, well, what if this were nowadays? I mean, this guy was from the old school and it was his way or the highway. Uh, what if it were nowadays and I was a kid and, and I had a diagnosis or I had a support network in place and people just understood that my brain's going to function differently and we're able to, to accommodate that in some way. Um, the hope is that that's happening in ways that are really helpful, but it's a process and it's a journey and people don't know what to make of the autistic brain yet. And especially when it's um, still being formed in childhood. And so you get stories of hostility and people calling police in and, and harming autistics because they're, they're afraid that they'll harm themselves or somebody else. And it just seems to be so much misunderstanding still. So the dream would be that we're making progress and that we're doing better. And I see signs of that. And that's my prayer for young people on the spectrum that they would have it a little bit easier if I come along, you know, in my forties and write a book like this, maybe that will bring about a, something a little bit better uh, for younger people. But the reality is right now is pretty mixed, you know, <laughs> it's tough. Cause um, I think, so many, um, the people I give a lot of credit to our teachers, you know, in our public schools um, are, are working so hard to understand better and to design learning experiences that will reach lots of different kinds of thinkers. And so I see hope in that, um, but I also still see so much misunderstanding and, um, and it makes me sad. It's, it's just tough. I think especially, I might add um, quickly, especially when it comes to uh, people of color who are autistic and, and women who are autistic, that both are historically underdiagnosed because so many of the diagnostic tools and frameworks were based on data collected from white males, essentially. And so uh, it doesn't always fit, you know, it doesn't always present that same way in other people. And so um, it's a mixed bag right now, but I like to see the arc bending toward justice as it were. Yes. Oh, thank you. For, that's good. One of the pictures that you gave in the book that I found quite helpful was the metaphor of riding a motorcycle versus driving a car. Now, I have a friend who rides a motorcycle, and he told me once about how much more kind of plugged in and aware of the world you have to be. I've never ridden on a motorcycle. My <laughs> wife says I'm never allowed. Uh, I wonder if you could unpack that metaphor for us and explain a little bit for those who have uh, no personal connection uh, with understanding an autistic mind or the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I appreciate you picking up on that metaphor. I think it's, for me, it's one of the one of the better ones. Um, I think a lot of the ways I talk about autism in the book are metaphorical because I'm a creative writer, a poet, I think in terms of imagery and all the various kind of, you know, symbols and metaphors that present themselves through the images. So the motorcycle ride thing, I mean, um, especially my motorcycle in particular, I have sold it uh, since then, but, but uh, the one that I write about in the book was an old, old machine. 
And so in addition to just being unguarded by a windshield and the, the frame of a car, um, you're really doing a lot of physical work to actually just make the thing go safely. <laughs> so the, the metaphor basically goes like this. When you're, if you're in a regular car nowadays, they're, they're pretty luxurious. If a, if a bee um, happens to fly into your windshield, it's, you're not going to experience much discomfort or pain from that. Um, if you hit a pebble, you know, on your back tire, it's probably not going to really do anything much. You won't notice those things. Um, you can have music on, you could be talking uh, through Bluetooth on your cell phone or whatever, and just kind of getting from point A to point B without thinking about it much. That seems to me to be somewhat, somewhat fitting um, for the neurotypical life when I see people who are, are just sort of happy-go-lucky or um, can just kind of get through their days without um, severe bouts of depression and things like that. Uh, the autistic life, on the other hand, people think about it a lot of times first with eye contact and social skills. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I know autism. This, the, you can't make eye contact and you're really awkward. And I say, well, OK, but um, a lot of that is, is intertwined with sensory processing. So for me, if the temperature in the room is too hot, if the sun is too bright, if something is making loud noises, if someone's out mowing their lawn or blowing leaves with a leaf blower, you know, my neighbor three houses down, pe people in my family may not even hear it, but it's drilling into my skull and just terrorizing me. So that's like being on a motorcycle. If a wasp hits your face when you're riding a motorcycle at 55 miles an hour down a road, you will feel it, you will experience it. If you hit a small pebble, your life may be in danger. Um, all your senses are um, fully engaged all the time, and you're kind of in that fight or flight mode on the bike to keep the thing on the road and to be safe almost consistently. And that's kind of how it is for me to go through the autistic life. I rarely can I ever put it on cruise control, even for a minute. <laughs> that's a that's a really helpful picture. Yeah, I, I remember reading that and I thought, huh, this is so yeah. There are certainly times where I feel like I'm on autopilot or, or like, again, yeah. as a, as a person of relative power and privilege, a heterosexual white cisgendered Christian male in North America, right. you know, <laughs> there's so little I have to consciously be aware of. Right. Yeah. And, and I feel that too. I, I feel all those same privileges a lot of the time. And yet um, the, 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 the sheer, uh, physicality of of the sensory world you know is is always just in in overdrive no matter what and so that is very very hard to turn off um sometimes i think when studies look at um addictions in autistics for example more and more studies are looking at stuff like that i, I what makes sense to me is that people just simply want to come down from that um sensory overload experience all the time you know and just be just be evened out a little bit and so you know meds can do that for some folks and and some people self-medicate for that kind of thing but i understand the impulse behind it it's, it's tough to keep going when you feel like that all the time yeah yeah certainly this is a little bit maybe of a left field question but it's just something that i've been chewing over philosophically i'd be interested to know if you have any thoughts on it in this kind of 
we could say post COVID. I recognize it may not be post for everybody, yeah. but um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm recognizing that I have far less capacity than I had before. I was talking yeah. to a friend, and he said all the muscles that he had built up over his career for managing a busy schedule, those muscles seem to have atrophied. Hmm. And I, I feel much the same. I all the taxi driving for my children and all the things it takes much less to overwhelm me now. Yeah. And they like, there's no doubt that the world we live in uh, is and has been biased towards neurotypical folks. But, but what I'm wondering about is maybe this world that we live in actually doesn't help neurotypical folk thrive either maybe this world actually doesn't really work for anyone yeah do, do you have any thoughts on that like just at a society yeah <laughs> no i mean that makes a lot of sense to me i think um i don't know here in 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 the u.s and in canada perhaps it, some of it can be attributed to to um the, the particular state of capitalism that we're in i feel like the engines are running 24 seven and somebody's getting very wealthy off them, but it's not any of us. <laughs> we're just, we're just putting in our time and, and trying to live a life, um, not just make a living and make money, but make a life, uh, make meaning. And that is very, very tough to do under these conditions. Yeah. And I think especially late pandemic or post pandemic, as it were, um, Many people are coming to realize the limitations that, that they have emotionally and, and, and um, even physically and um, perhaps coming to see their own values um, in, a, in a clearer light and, and maybe, I, maybe hopefully being inspired. You know what I'm thinking of is um, it makes me think of uh, Mako Fujimura, uh, the great visual artist, the Japanese um, American painter. Um, his, his first book, Refractions, talks about uh, when, when September 11th hit in New York City and he was living right down the street, suddenly a crisis made him re-examine his life. And he said, living in a post 9-11 world, I thought I was pretty happy just being an artist and getting into a fancy gallery in Chelsea or whatever. And then suddenly I had to rethink everything. <laughs> you know, It caused me to question my values and who I am and what I want to accomplish you know in my short time on earth and so yeah it makes sense to me that that covid would have that same impact on us yeah yeah thanks for that uh one of the things that i that was very helpful to me again that you did early on in the book um was explaining the difference between a pathology paradigm and a neurodiversity paradigm i i, I would i would have to admit that the paradigm I was raised with was that autism was this, uh, let's essentially say a sickness um, right. and, and whether through therapy or in, in my Christian tradition, uh, we were big on divine healing. And so if you just prayed the right prayers and used the right anointing oil and, you know, did all the, went through all the Christian voodoo steps, maybe God would heal you or your child of this affliction. Um, yeah. Forgive me for, for reiterating that language. 
could you maybe walk us through again this the pathology versus the the neurodiversity paradigm? Yeah, um, you know it's tricky because it, it's 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 never exactly an, an either or. It's a little bit of a both and. However, if you just take that pathology model and you look at the the kind of language that's used, and we know that language is so powerful in shaping people's um, the stories that that we tell about each other. And so the pathology model, and I quote this in the book, I just simply did a a real um, low-tech experiment and Googled, you know, characteristics of autism or symptoms of autism. And what comes up is language that that feels so dramatically um, negative that it just paints you as just a, a complete weirdo. And then you have to think, well, okay, if you live with that language for years, what's your, what's your, um, what's the story that you tell yourself about yourself? Of course it's negative. So they say, well, um, you know, has strange um, voice inflections, has a weird posture, uh, doesn't know how to make eye contact, doesn't know how to talk to people, um, gets obsessed with weird niche interests. And they're painting this picture. Those, those things are true after a manner of speaking, but um, they're not necessarily bad. <laughs> they're not necessarily hurting other people. Um, if I um, stim or you know do a, a self-regulatory behavior, like a flapping of a hand or something, it's probably regulating my emotions and it's not hurting anybody else. It just looks weird to them. So that pathology model, you know, is telling people that these, these autistics are so weird. You, you can spot them a mile away because they're just freaks of nature. And the neurodiversity model says, actually all these constellation of um, the, these characteristics and traits are normal for them and they're not really hurting anybody. Um, so instead of thinking they're so weird, why don't you look at them in a more neutral light and just say they're different and then say, what's behind those differences? Why does a little kid flap his hands? Uh, what's that about? Or um, particularly like a, a, a kid who's sensitive to noises, you know, when a neighborhood dog starts barking and a kid covers his ears and rocks back and forth, it's trying to soothe himself, you know? And so while it looks strange to others, um, it's perfectly reasonable, actually. Yeah, which I think also belies the fact that the neurotypical are also trying to soothe ourselves and right. <laughs> have either found more, more socially normative addictions or ways to soothe yeah. um, right. or are, are no better, in fact, perhaps worse in touch with our own needs. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, again, so I love people will say things to me like, oh, you know, well, I did this when I was a child or my parents spanked me or whatever, and I turned out fine. And we, we say these kinds of things. I'm like, really? Did anyone turn out fine? It seems to right. me that we are all a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's some, there's some truth in the fact that I, I don't, um, I, I don't resent being autistic because honestly, it has taught me to um, become self-aware at that level and understand what I need, I think, from, um, from spiritual direction and from straight up counseling and therapy over the years, which I still go to every month of my life. Um, and it, it's just has helped me so much, you know, and I don't know if I would have had that the um, desire or the need to seek out that kind of self-awareness if, if I wasn't different, you know. Yes. So I, I think it's kind of a, maybe a gift of neurodiversity, as it says in the subtitle. 
Well, yeah, and you, you're you're get, when you start to unpack some of the gifts of neurodiversity, I found that really beautiful. When you, especially as an artist, and you start to talk about, you know, focus and the ability to really yeah. drill down in on something to the exclusion of everything else and and other gifts, I thought that is that is really wonderful. And how like us to miss the gifts of people different than us? Yeah, and you know, um, it's it's really relevant to talk about that because there are people out there who are looking at, um, you know, stuff at the genetic level and they're talking about basically eugenics. I mean, there'll be people with money who can make a designer baby if they want to, they probably already can. Um, and, and that means prenatal screening for autism. And if they're able to detect it, some people are going to want to say, yeah, you know what, we'll abort that fetus and we'll wait till the uh, normal one comes along. Well, um, in, in all honesty, be careful what you wish for, because you're, you know, people are sitting there scrolling down their uh, new iPhone 13 or whatever it is. I'm like, I guarantee I can guarantee you that somewhere in Silicon Valley was an autistic person who solved a problem in the development of that technology that no one else would stick with. And mm -hmm. we're just so stubborn and focused that he figured it out, you know? Yeah. And so we're making these contributions to the world, I believe. And in my case, it would be in the arts, you know, it might be a poem that a handful of people read, but it, it still feels um, like it, like a valuable contribution. So it's tough for me when people think in such all or nothing kinds of ways, you know, about that. Cause I think uh, be careful what you wish for. Wow, thank. That's a sobering example. Thanks for for sharing that. One, I, I pastor in, in the church. Um, I read you've you've spent a uh, you've been in a in a almost well maybe even more traditions than me, and I, I would like to think that I've been uh, broadly traveled in the church. But I, I loved hearing some of your journey. I wonder if you could uh, share some of your journey within the church, um, maybe the, the good and the bad. Yeah, sure. I mean. Um... Overall, you know, going through all those different churches and denominations and things over the years was usually just a matter of we'd move someplace, um, not as a child. I never really moved anywhere as a child. I grew up blue collar and, and uh, stayed in the same town and, you know, everything for my childhood. But later on, I would move for college, for grad school, for jobs, and just seeking out a community um, that was meeting me where I was theologically in terms of the, the evolution of my own thinking about God and everything. And, 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 um, and also had opportunities for service. And so sometimes that would look like, you know what, the, the place in this town um, where I'm teaching high school for a couple of years is a Presbyterian church. So now I'm, I guess I'm Presbyterian for a couple of years. It didn't really matter to me too much what that was um, on the extremes, I suppose. I was baptized and confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church because I grew up in, a, in an Irish Catholic town in upstate New York. And later on, uh, to a, kind of an, a, a different extreme, my mom got saved, as it were, in, in, in quotes, um, and um, it took us to a, a pretty fundamentalist Baptist church. Uh, and so that was a whole different experience. And I, I began to understand the world of legalism and all that before I had any words for it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, getting out of those things and later on in life, I went to, um, a I went to a Christian college in Rochester, New York, um, which is a, a Wesleyan school, Methodist school and sort of, sort of more mainline type stuff. And then, um, yeah, I've been all over the, 
all over the board since then. Uh, right now, I guess I'll end this by saying I attended an Episcopal church, uh, which I've really loved. I've been there for a while now. And I think not only does the preaching from the pulpit really challenge and grow me and edify me, um, and the community is diverse and, and, and full of need. And sometimes I feel like I can help meet those needs um, in unique ways. But also, um, I've come to, as an autistic person, I think, appreciate the repetition of the liturgy, um, the comfort of the structure of the, uh, of the order of the service every week, same thing every time, um, except during Lent, then it changes a little bit, and then you go back, you know. Uh, but that structure has been really nice for me. I really love that. And it provides comfort. I hadn't been in a long time, to be honest, because of COVID stuff. Uh, and then I went out to church. Uh, I say out because it's 30 minutes from my house. So it's a little bit of a commitment to get out there early in the morning. Um, and and the, 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 the level of comfort and uh, beauty and richness and texture that I experienced in that service was so powerful for me. It was just like a homecoming. It just felt absolutely incredible. So that's where I am nowadays. Um, and we have a, a wonderful uh, minister at our church. And um, she teaches me and challenges me every single week. So it's been, that's been really good. But yeah, I've been to every kind of church you could think of. I love that. Including at one point, a big mega church. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We'll take a quick pause so that I can say a big thank you to everybody who supports the show, shares episodes, follows me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Big love to Christine, Anna, and Jordan, who are my latest supporters on Patreon. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's an easy way to support people like me who are creating things, putting them out in the world. You can sign up for $3 a month or something like $30 a year. Uh, you can also give more if you'd like, and your support makes all of this possible. As a thank you, I offer B-sides to each episode of the podcast, where I sit down with a friend and we go behind the scenes and talk about how the interview happened and how it impacted me, and we further just unpack the subject. I also love to send little handwritten cards and thank yous to people who are giving $10 a month and more. So head over to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle if you're enjoying the show and want to be a supporter. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the show. Are there some ways that the church is um, is failing autistic folk pretty consistently or, consistent or not? Um, I Yeah, I, I think probably just a, a lack of awareness of different brain types. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's tough because of course you're not going to be able to meet everyone's needs all the time or meet everyone where they're at. Uh, if you do one thing and you think you're doing it well in light of an autistic uh, person in your congregation, that will probably hit somebody else the wrong way. Um, I, that's the, the irony of this whole thing. I have autistic students in my classrooms at, here at the university who will be stimming with a, with a pen and clicking it. And I know I'm the guy that's supposed to be really open to that because I'm on the spectrum and yeah, it's making me crazy and I can't think and I can't teach. So, you know, I, I do, I look at it with a, with a sense of humor and a grain of salt. It's, it's tough. Um, I would just say if they're, if any of us are letting each other down in any ways, it's probably because we're, we're not seeking out greater knowledge and wisdom about one another. Mm. And so, um, Anytime somebody decides to read a book 
um, a so-called own voices book, which means that, that, that the book is written by a member of that marginalized community, you know, whether it's autism or we're looking at, you know, indigenous people's day and things like that, read a book by an indigenous Christian and understand the way that their faith tradition has, um, been in their life and stuff like that, or, or someone of, um, a person of color or whatever it is. If we're not learning more about each other as often as we can, then we're then we're all doing a disservice. And so it's not just autism, but I think think everybody, you know. So in other words, today's pastor should probably have a somewhat of a sociological slash anthropological uh, viewpoint. Uh, reading some literature never hurt anybody. <laughs> uh, reading great novels and poems from around the world has never, you know. Um, her, it, it in fact helps um, speed up the process of getting to know all the differences in people, I think. Yes. Without being too pie in the sky about it. Yes. Oh, I love that. One thing that that just totally, uh, I didn't see it coming and I loved it. It was such a beautiful surprise was the chapters on your contemplative spiritual experience. Uh, I've, I've also got a rich contemplative practice. Uh, mm. I've been to the Abbey of the Genesee there. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I've never actually been there. I've always wanted to. I lived right near it for a long, long time. Yeah, I've been once. And honestly, I just, that's what I'm waiting for, for the U.S. border to reopen so that I can just get yeah. down there with the monks and uh, and the landscape and the quiet. Um, awesome. It sounded like like aspects of the contemplative spiritual practice were kind of like a, a really key discovery for you. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for me, I mean, I, I think it, it went with um, it was when I was living in Cincinnati and I was in grad school for my MA. You know, I went to a Christian college for undergrad. And so kind of the relationship between literature or art and Christian faith was was maybe more apparent in a kind of everyday way. And then I went to a big research one university for graduate school and that relationship was not being examined anymore. It was more about race and gender and human sexuality and all these other things. Um, and I really missed the spiritual dimension. Um, I went to church on and off during that time. We went to a couple different kinds of churches, um, even did some missions work um, in different parts of the world during that time. But I, I felt like I had lost my way, you know, in some ways, um, I lost that first bloom of youth in my faith. And I knew that I was in a place where that was gone and I couldn't get it back. I couldn't become, you can't unring that bell and become a naive 19 year old anymore. Uh, you, you Now you're 25 and you're a little bit jaded. So what do you do? Well, a friend of mine um, came out to visit from New York, came out to Cincinnati we, and he took me to a church service. And there was this little older man uh, who was preaching and it just telling stories and it was super interesting. He talked like a poet, but he was kind of a preacher and his name was Brendan Manning. Um, and yeah, and Brendan Manning really had quite an influence on me. Um, when I, when I met him and I shook his hand after that service and I thought if there are people who are lyrical and poetic and, and contemplative who are writing books like Manning is writing and I ate up all his books instantly after that. And then I got into Henry Nouwen, and then I got into Richard Rohr, and then I got into Julian of Norwich, everybody, you know, uh, Meister Eckhart, all of it, right? Um, 
but yeah, I credit Brendan Manning with um, kind of getting me on that path. And so that changed my life. There's absolutely no doubt that changed my life. And I think even now, I can't write a single essay without quoting Richard Rohr at some point. It's just going to come out, it's become the furniture of my mind, and it's just going to be there. That story you shared about um, ending up down by the lake, you know, even even stripping down and, and getting in the water, I was just like, this is... <laughs> it for me like i my wife and i lived in finland for six years and so there's even something about oh. sauna and and the ritual yeah. and getting naked and swimming yeah freezing cold water that like yeah awakens your senses to like oh yeah god yeah. it's everywhere and always has been <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah it's one of those things where you know you're just living your life and doing your thing and then suddenly you end up it's 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 dusk and you're you know swimming in a pond with a monk who studied under thomas merton and you're talking about life you're just like this is cool this is really great uh, I, lo- I love that daniel what is um what is beautiful and life-giving to you right now um i'll tell you what's the most beautiful thing in my life right now is um helping young people uh, in this community, and it, I, I there are a lot of stories that I could tell. <laughs> there are a lot of stories I could tell um, without giving away, you know, names and details and things like that. There are some young people here who who um, just have such great need. They need tenderness and they need leadership and gentleness and, and affirmation and acceptance and. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I spent uh, a number of very, very late nights in the ER with a student who was self-harming. And uh, this student is indigenous and, and South American and autistic and has a lot of intersecting identities that are complicated and was abused as a child and all these other things. And here I am, I'm sitting in the emergency room with this kid. I say kid, not pejoratively, but, you know, as a term of endearment, I think the older I get, the more the college kids feel like my own kids, you know, my own daughter is almost six, is, is 16 now. Um, and I'm sitting in the ER with this kid and I'm, and I'm almost smiling because it's such an honor and such a privilege to be on the ground um, helping when there's nobody there. Um, that's, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything. I just am honored and floored that that's the life that I get to live right now. I like to write and I love to do events like this and talk about craft and storytelling and literature and autism and things. But the bottom line for me right now is um, trying to help this new generation. Um, They're complicated, they're self-aware, they understand a lot of times their own baggage but they, it doesn't mean they still know what to do with it. They still need help, you know, they need guidance. And so it's such an honor to be in that position. I absolutely, um, I wake up just feeling uh, like, a, like I have a great sense of purpose. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Friends, I cannot recommend this book to you enough or, or Daniel and his work. Daniel Bowman Jr. on the spectrum, Autism, Faith and the Gifts, of neurodiversity. Uh, Daniel, where would you direct people to go to find out about you? 
I hang out a lot on Twitter and on Instagram. So uh, my handle uh, is just Daniel Bowman Jr. at Daniel Bowman Jr. on both of those platforms. Um, I guess that, you know, could take you to my website and stuff, but um, I, I'm, I'm really thrilled about the work that this book is doing right now and getting into people's hands and, and it's enabling me to meet people and have more conversations with, with lots of people from all over the place. And that's just thrilling. So find me online and say hi. Yeah, I'd love to, to meet more people. Mm. Daniel, as we sign off here, would you pray for us? And, and I'm thinking for, I guess in, in my head, there's two, obviously, whatever the spirit leads you, but I'm thinking this, there's those of us who are wanting to help create a, a more equitable world, especially for our neurodiverse brothers and sisters. But also I'm, I'm thinking of, of uh, listeners to the show who are going, oh, maybe that describes me. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. I would, I would love to pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to, to come together with Jonathan today. And, um, you know, I'll never know um, the, the, the seeds that are planted here in a conversation like this, who might be listening and what they might grow into later on and the, the fertile soil that they may land on. So Lord, um, for those who, who listen to this podcast, um, please bless them. Um, honor their desire to, to uh, make the world a better place, um, honor their desires to get to know themselves better. Um, and if they happen to um, feel that some of these reflections check boxes in their own lives and that perhaps they're uh, neurodivergent, then please um, uh, open up a way for them, open up a path for them to um, find more information and to get help. Uh, at least speaking here in the U.S. anyway, the mental health care system is very uh, difficult and challenging to navigate. And sometimes, Lord, the, um, the very challenges that those um, systems present um, really conflict with the strengths and, and the weaknesses of people on the spectrum. For example, something as simple as making a phone call can be very challenging. Um, so bless and honor um, folks who uh, are coming to be aware of a diagnosis. And then also, I thank you so much for those who um, are listening and who are saying, you know, as a neurotypical person in the church, uh, we need to make some more room for autistics and folks with ADHD and, and, and um, uh, some of these other um, conditions. And so I, I'm just very, very thankful. I, anytime I encounter anyone who uh, wants to do that, I, I just, I, I just am so grateful for that openness and, and for that heart that wants to make the world a better place. Um, just as we want to make it better for folks who have physical disabilities, you know, um, and put ramps on our buildings and things. I think of um, making accommodations for autistics as as kind of building um, wheelchair ramps, you know, at our churches and things like that, or elevators. Uh, for elderly folks and so forth. So um, give us a vision and imagination to be able to accomplish that. And um, uh, just hold us in the palm of your hand um, now now and always um, as we seek to bring the kingdom of God uh, here to earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. How good was that? Make sure to go uh, to the show notes and grab a copy of Daniel's book, On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. You'll find the links to buy it on Amazon there at my show notes. Uh, you can get that as well at jonathanpuddle.com slash podcast. And uh, you'll find links to go and follow Daniel on Instagram and Twitter at Daniel Berman Jr. 
He's a wonderful guy, clearly an advocate as you can hear, uh, a compassionate spirit, and really doing important work uh, to educate and inform and break stigma. So, so thankful to get to know Daniel. He wasn't someone that I was familiar with. The book came across my desk and it really, really spoke to me. So I'm thrilled to make that connection now. Alrighty, friends. New interviews coming up your way. Lots more in the pipeline. Glad to have you with us. Uh, if you're enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter or share it with a friend. Go tell somebody about the show. And if you have not ever read my book, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You, you can find that on my website, jonathanpottle.com. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace to you. We'll talk soon.